Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Good to see you. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors, and I want to welcome you today. We're going to be going to our time of teaching right now. We do this every week, and uh, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet, and so I encourage you to take that out if you would, and that'll help you follow along, and if you guys are all set, I'm ready to go. You guys ready to pray? Let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to continue this journey of really pursuing you as a church and discovering what it means to follow you, to be changed by you, to be used by you, to live life on mission. And so we pray, God, as we come today, I just pray for uh, power. I pray for clarity. I pray for authority. As I speak, God, that your words would flow through me. I pray for us as a church. We'd be gathered around your word, and we'd have ears to hear what you'd say to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now for the last three weeks. It's called Sent Going Global. And for those of you who are brand new, this is actually the third series in a longer-running series uh, that's kind of based on a study on the, the, one, one of the most important books in the New Testament, a longer book called the Book of Acts. And the Book of Acts kind of documents the, the early movement of Jesus, the rise and rapid expansion of the movement of Jesus as it starts in Jerusalem right after the resurrection of Jesus, and then kind of rapidly moves across the Roman world over the next 30 years all the way to Rome. And so... Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been focused in on this particular church in the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch uh, is, is in an area called Syria. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. In fact, there in your note sheet, if you open up on the inside, we'll be using these maps a lot today, so might as well get oriented. Um, if you look on the right side of your map, about halfway up, you'll see uh, the city of Antioch, and there is Syria. Now, there are a couple Antiochs on the map. We'll come back to this later, but this is Antioch of Syria. And so what happens is that this movement of Jesus expands from Jerusalem. Some believers go all the way up to this uh, major city, third largest city in the Roman Empire uh, of Antioch. They share Jesus with both Jews and Gentiles. And this first church of Jesus there that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles gets started. And the Holy Spirit calls them to send out two of their brightest and best out into the Roman Empire to share the message of Jesus where it's never gone before. So these two guys' names are Saul or Paul and Barnabas. And, uh, and so last week we watched as they, they headed out, and you can see there on your map, they came went south uh, uh, out of Antioch. They went down to the island of Cyprus. They started there at Salamis on the, on the western side, then moved all, on the eastern side, moved all the way to Paphos. And we watched last week what happened. So today they're going to go north back to the mainland. Now, this would be like modern-day Turkey. And we're going to watch what God does there. Um, And it's going to be an incredible passage, really. Because what uh, Luke's going to do is he wants to lay out for us Paul's paradigm of kind of how he shares Jesus, and especially how Paul shares Jesus with Jewish people. And so in this passage, it's actually quite a long one today, Paul is, uh, Luke is going to lay out for it. Here is Paul's uh, method, and here is Paul's message, all right? And this is important because he's going to be doing this the rest of the book of Acts, and so today he's going to break it down, give us a little fuller uh, kind of description of how this works. So uh, let me, before we jump in the passage, let me lay out, uh, first of all, his method, and then we'll talk about his message, all right? So we talk about his, um, his method, what Paul would do is when he and his team, they would usually select a city to share Jesus in that was a major city on a big, on a, on a major like interstate, a thoroughfare. And so it's very strategic. He didn't always do this, but he typically do this. Pick a place where that you could be like the capital of a province or something where a lot of people were going through so that the message of Jesus could start there and then branch out into surrounding areas. So he'd pick, a, pick the right place. Secondly, um, when he would go into a new city, if they had a synagogue there, and most ancient cities did, that he would go into the synagogue and he would share Jesus with the Jews first. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. One was strategic, one was uh, spiritual, and one was strategic. Okay? So let's talk about the spiritual reason. One of the things we've talked about in this series is that the message of Jesus is the message of Israel. In other words, everything that's happened from from Abraham on has been this this leading up to the coming of Messiah. And so God's made all these promises to the nation that one day from the the line of David, a great king will come, who will turn all wrongs to right, bring in the new heavens to new earth, and so on. And um, And so those promises have been made to Israel. And so when Messiah comes, 
God wants the message to go first to Israel because they're the ones he made the promises to initially. Uh, but there's a second reason that's just strategic. And that's it. If you're starting a movement of Jesus, it makes sense to start with people who already know the basics. So like when you go in the pagan world, they're worshiping like Zeus and they're worshiping Hermes and different gods. And so um, you want to start with Jews because they already know the true God. They know Yahweh. They already have been reading the Bible, the word of God. They already know a lot about God. And so it's a great place to launch this movement. And on top of that, um, in the Jewish synagogue, there would always be Gentiles that we call God-fearers. Now, uh, these were men and women who uh, were Gentiles, but they were really, they loved the God of Israel. And so they turned from their pagan gods or philosophy, and they turned to the God of Israel. They had not converted to Judaism, because that required for the men being circumcised, which is always a major obstacle. Uh, uh, secondly, you've got to change your eating habits, and we all know how hard that is, right? And number three, you have to start taking a different day off, Sabbath, right? So uh, for all these reasons, they would typically not want to convert, but they want to worship God. And so there'd be these Gentiles. So like we've met some of them in Acts. Like remember Cornelius, the Roman military officer? He was a God-fearer. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was a god God-fearer, right? So these people would be a natural bridge to the Gentile world because they're Gentiles, they have Gentile relationships, and yet they're worshiping the God of Israel. So they're a natural bridge. And so what would happen is Paul would typically go into uh, the service, and he would uh, share Jesus, and uh, some Jews would come to Christ, and some God-fearers would come to Christ, but eventually there'd be a revolt. Eventually, they'd get tired of Paul, kick him out, and then once he would leave, he would go out and share Jesus with just the Gentile community at large. So by the time he leaves the city, you've got this new community of Jesus there, and it's made up of three kinds of people. It's made up of Jews, of God-fearers and pagans, pagan Gentiles, right? That's everything. So what we're going to see today is he's going to go into this major city of Antioch. I'll talk about it more in a minute. And he is going to share Jesus, and we'll see that pattern. Secondly, let's talk about the, uh, the message that Paul would bring. There in your note sheet, I've kind of laid this out. And I want you to remember this. Whenever we are in Acts and we're reading a sermon in Acts, it only takes a couple minutes to read it. Now, we know that Paul would speak for a long time. In fact, there's one time we'll see later in Acts, he speaks through the whole night. One guy falls from the second story and dies. I know a lot of you think I go for a long time, but so far, no one's died. So I'm ahead of the Apostle Paul. So Paul would go for a long time. He's teaching for a long time. When we have these sermons in Acts, they are abbreviated. They're a synopsis. They're an executive summary. Um, they're like, for those of you who are old, cliff notes. Uh, for those of you who are young, it's like internet, it's like Wikipedia. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, that these would be a quick summary to give you a feel for the teaching of Paul or Peter or whatever, um, but they, they're not going to give you the whole thing. So, um, so when we're speaking to Jewish audiences, they're very familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, Paul's got often these messages here that is going to be recorded by Luke are very cryptic, and so a little hard to follow. So what I've done here is on your note sheet, I've kind of given you an outline of this message that he's going to give. Now, here's what I want you to catch. This is Paul's first sermon in the book of Acts, recorded in the book of Acts. Not first sermon in his life, but in the book of Acts recorded. And in this first message, what Luke is doing is he's showing us this is the kind of message that, that uh, Paul would share when he was sharing Christ with Jews. This is going to be the only message to Jews in all of Acts. We'll have two more messages from Paul, one to rural pagans and one to high-class philosophical pagans. So what Luke is doing in Acts is giving us, here's an example of the type of ways that, G, that Paul would share Jesus with different audiences. So today, um, we're going to have this major example of how Paul goes into his city, we're going to look at his strategy, we're going to look at his, sorry, we're going to look at his methods and his message, all right? So there in your notes, you have a section called um, Sent the Method and the Message. With that as an intro, let's jump in, chapter 13, and now that we've, uh, we've, we've uh, kind of go, gone over it, we'll be able to uh, kind of move through it pretty quickly. When we get to the message, I'll break it down quickly before we jump in. So anyway, in verse 13, uh, it says, from Paphos. So find Paphos on your map. It's on the, the west end of Cyprus. That's where we were last week. So from Paphos, Paul and his companions, they sailed to Perga 
which was a major city in Pamphylia. So we'll see that just like in our modern world, like if I said San Francisco, it's a city, right? It's in a county. I'm guessing Marin. I'm not sure. But so let's, let's say for that, Marin County. Uh, and, and, let's, and then it's in the state of California. In the same world, the ancient world had major Roman provinces and then smaller subsection areas and so on. So he says they went to the city named Perga, and it was in this area called Pamphylia. And it says John left them to return to Jerusalem. So remember, they picked up this uh, young assistant uh, called, uh, called John Mark, uh, author of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and he's going to leave them here. Now, Luke is not going to go into this big time right now. But this turns out, this is a big deal, that, uh, that Luke is, uh, that John Mark uh, is actually not just leaving, he's deserting. Uh, and this is going to cause a major rift between Paul and Barnabas later on. And so Luke's not going to go into it right now, but uh, he just wants to let you know this is where it happened. And we'll come back to it in chapter 15. Anyway, so from Perga then, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. So same name, Antioch, where they started from, but a different area. And uh, so on the Sabbath, like as he normally does, he's going to enter the synagogue. This is what he does. And he sits down. Uh, by the way, uh, Antioch was the, the capital, I think Sacramento, it was the capital of the pro- Roman province of Galatia. So have you heard of the book of Galatians? It's written to these cities that we're going to be studying the next couple of weeks, Christians in these cities. So he goes to this capital city, strategic area. Uh, it's not easy to get there. It's about 100 miles from Perga to Pamphylia over very dangerous mountain roads, a very uh, famous pass in ancient times called the Sicilian Gates, or Cilician Gates. And, uh, and so it's uh, a lot of bandits and so on. But they're going to make this journey. And they come to this capital, and, um, and on, in verse 14, on the Sabbath, then they go into the synagogue, and they sit down. And so after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So uh, synagogues at this time had a standard liturgy, kind of order of service. And you'd start with some prayers and certain blessings and so on. But then eventually you get to so read through a reading from the law of the Torah of Moses. And there'd be a reading from the prophets. And this was on a set schedule, how they would do that. And then they would have someone from the congregation share a message, like a sermon much like, you know, we do here. And, uh, and so on this particular day, they look up. Paul is there. He's a traveling rabbi. And so they said, hey, great, guest speaker, would you like to speak? And he says, actually, I'm glad you asked. And so, and standing up, uh, Paul motions uh, in verse 16. He says, fellow Israelites and Gentiles who worship God. See the two characters there, uh, Jews, two kinds of people, Jews and God-fearers. Uh, he says, listen to me, and he's going to begin his message. Now, just to make this easier, let's look at your note sheet. I'm going to break down this message into four movements. Uh, this is very typical. This is how Paul is going to share Jesus with Jews, uh, but it's the only place in Acts that's going to be broken down for us. Can I give an example? He's going to start with their story. Remember, the story of Jesus is a story of Israel. It's the final chapters in a long-running drama. And so he's going to start by reminding them of their history. He's going to start with Abraham. He's going to go up to King David, who is the high point of their history, the golden age. When David, uh, towards the end of his reign, God promised David that one day from his line, he would have a son who would rule forever, the Messiah. This becomes a big deal in Israel, the the hope of Messiah. Um, And so he's going to go over the history, and then he's going to move on to the next movement in this, this message, where he's going to talk about God's story, the promise, which is the promise of the Messiah. He'll do that very rapidly in this message, but of course, they're all familiar with it. And then he's going to go on to show Jesus' story, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises about the coming Messiah. And then he's going to challenge him, what's your story? How are you responding? Will you respond to the Savior who God has sent? So let's jump in and see how this goes. So he stands up in verse 16, and he motions with his hands, and he says, fellow Israelites and Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of our, the people of Israel, he chose our ancestors. So think like, uh, think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he made the people prosper during their stay to, in Egypt. So, of course, through Joseph, remember, they go down to Egypt. It's a time of slavery, but it's also a time they greatly prosper numerically. And then with mighty power, he led them out of the country. So that's Moses. And then for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, you know, wilderness wanderings. And then he overthrew seven nations in Canaan under Joshua, took the promised land, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took 450 years. So he's moving fast, right? right? 
Now, after this, God gave them judges. So after Joshua comes judges, right? And you remember judges. You think Samson, you think Delilah. No, she wasn't. You just think Samson, you think Delilah. But uh, Samson, you think Gideon, you think uh, Deborah, you think Jephthah. And so there's the era of the judges. And then after that, the people um, uh, ask for a king, verse 21. You know, Samuel is a prophet when that happens. And uh, he gives them Saul, son of Kish, their first king, who's of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. And then after removing Saul, he made David their king. And David testif- uh, God testified about him, saying, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Uh, he's pursuing me. And he'll do everything I want him to do. So unlike Saul, who would pick and choose, David would follow God's uh, orders. Okay, so, so we've gotten the history. All right, we've gone from Abraham to David, high point. Now, with just a one quick turn, he's going to hit the second point about the promise of David's greater son, the Messiah. And so he says, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. All right, so he's making, I mean, we know about the promise of Messiah and we're transitioning very rapidly. Jesus is the Messiah. And so now he's going to talk about Jesus. So before the coming of Jesus, John, that's John the Baptist, he preached repentance and baptism to all the people in Israel. So if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you know this. All four gospels starts with the coming of John. John was a very important prophet. He was the one that God had predicted in the Old Testament would come and prepare the way for Messiah. That's how the story starts. And he says, as John was completing his work, he said, why do you suppose, or who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for. I'm not the Messiah, but, um, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, I'm not worthy to, we would say, kiss his feet, but in their language, be his slave. Okay? And he says, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Jews, two groups, it's to us this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem, their loot and their rulers, they didn't recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Here's the irony. They rejected him as Messiah, but by rejecting him, they proved he was the Messiah. And so in verse 28, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, it was completely illegal, they asked the Roman governor Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, in other words, the prophecies, they took him down from the cross. They laid him in a tomb. You know, he was really dead. But God raised him from the dead. That's the surprise ending of the story. And for many days, and he was seen by those who traveled with him from the north of Israel, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, and they're now witnesses to our people, talking about the apostles. And so we tell you the good news, that what God promised to our ancestors, you know, the Messiah, that he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Now he's going to back up his claims about the resurrection with three quotes from the Old Testament, three prophetic passages. Now remember, again, two-minute sermon, he's probably going for an hour, right? So he, he's just like we're, like, a, we're like a stone skimming the top of this message right now. But he's going to throw out, Luke's going to include three of the passages he referred to. Verses Psalm 2, famous messianic psalm, where Yahweh says to Messiah, the Lord says to my Lord, I'm going to make my enemies, uh, enemies make you rule over your enemies. You are going to be my son. I'll be your father. Second uh, prophecy, Isaiah 55, where God says, I will surely give you the promises of David. I'll fulfill that promise of eternal kingdom. And then the third one is Psalm 16, which is a psalm of David, where David, uh, uh, in fact, Peter quoted this psalm uh, back in Acts 2 in his first sermon, uh, that David said that God would not let his body decay in death. And uh, Peter said back there that uh, David was a prophet. Obviously, he died. We've got his tomb here, he declared. But his greater son, being a prophet, would not decay. He would not, he would not suffer in the grave de- de- uh, decay. So he's going to quickly run over this. So he says, uh, in the middle of verse 33, as is written in the second psalm, uh, you are my son. Today I become your father. He says, God raised him from the dead so he would not be subject to decay. As God has said, Isaiah 55, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And then from Psalm 16, as it's stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. So David, after David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he died. He was buried with his ancestors. His body did decay, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not decay. 
And therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. And so God had promised one day, Israel, that there would come a day when he'd bring the nation back and forgive their sins. This new era, when Messiah came, he says, that day is here. And so he says, uh, through him, verse 39, through Messiah, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And it's a justification that you are not able to obtain through the law of Moses. So we'll talk more about that later. So he said, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And so he gives them a warning. He quotes Habakkuk. And uh, it was another time in Israel's history when God was on the move and they were not getting it. And he says, uh, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe. I mean, who would have believed this whole Messiah comes, you know, killed, resurrected. I mean, God coming to rescue us, even if someone told you. So anyway, so that's kind of the end of their, their abbreviated message here, the account of the message. So as, as Barnabas, verse 42, uh, as Paul and Barnabas are leaving, people invited them to speak further about these the, the next Sabbath. They're saying, hey, that was awesome. Uh, you guys want to come back and speak again next week? And so uh, the congregation was dismissed, and many, catch this, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked to them and urged uh, them to continue. So it's like, hey, can we go to Starbucks and keep talking about this? This is awesome. And so, yeah, and they did. I'm sure that week they were doing teaching, and now word's getting out in the city, major capital city. And so, you know, CNN's covering. Everyone's on this thing. So next week, 44, the next Sabbath comes, next Saturday, almost the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. Now, this was going to cause a problem because the Jewish leaders in the synagogue, they're going to start getting jealous. It's like, hey, no one came to hear us talk. So uh, in verse 45, when the Jews hear the crowd, uh, see the crowd, they're filled with jealousy, and they begin to contradict what Paul was saying. That's not right. That's not true. And they heaped abuse on him. In fact, uh, in the Greek, it says they blasphemed him, which may be more than just uh, cursing him, but maybe actually blaspheming, cursing Jesus, as Paul had once done, by the way. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas, they answer boldly. Now, now we come to a turning point in the book of Acts. Okay? What happens next is big in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas going global, sharing the message of Jesus with the Jewish nation. But the Jewish nation, to a large degree, is going to begin to push back and reject. And so at this point, Paul's going to say, all right, we needed to come and share it with you first. You're God's chosen people. The promises were made to you. God was very clear. We start with you. But if you reject it, then we're going to reach out and share the message of Jesus with the whole world. Because this was God's vision from the beginning. And as we've talked about in this series, this was Israel often misunderstood or forgot. Israel often thought that the reason God chose them was an end in themselves. That God chose them, you're my people, the rest of the world can go to hell. That's kind of, a lot of Jews looked at it. And he said, but what they miss is that, no, the reason God chose Israel was that through Israel, he could reach the world. There was a calling on their nation, just like you and I. We come to Jesus. We're not the end of the story. Like, we've come to Jesus so we can share Jesus, so we can be a conduit. And so Israel had been called in the Old Testament to be the light of the world. That was their national calling. But they had messed up that calling, and so God brought the true Israelite, the Messiah. And through him, he would, be, he would carry out that function that God had called to the nation. And so... In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, there are four powerful prophecies about this mysterious character that we, that's called, who's called the, uh, the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, all caps. Most of you, or many of you, are probably familiar with the one famous prophecy. It's in, it's in Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant. He came, he was rejected like a lamb before a slaughter, you know, that whole thing, by his stripes were healed. You may be familiar you're probably not as familiar with the other three. But in the other three, there's in one of them, in Isaiah 49, God, Yahweh, is speaking to the servant of Yahweh, and he says, it's too small a thing for you to just bring back the nation of Israel. I'm going to make you a light for the whole nations. And so this was God's vision all along. And so Paul is going to take up that verse. And though that verse initially applied to the Messiah himself, because Paul, remember when Paul was first converted, Jesus told him he was going to be his apostle to the Gentiles. 
And so God has taken that verse that applied to the Messiah, and he's given it as a personal life verse for Paul the Apostle. And he says that you're called to be a light to the nations. Through me, through you, Paul, I'm going to share the message of Messiah with the whole world. And so at this point in Acts, where Paul is beginning to reach this resistance from the Jewish nation in Antioch, Luke is using this to help us understand this is a bigger picture of what's going on and why Paul will be called this apostle to the Gentiles. So here we go. So uh, Paul and Barnabas, they answer them boldly, and they said, look, we had to speak the word of God to you first, you know, as Jews. But since you reject it and you do not consider yourselves worthy of, what are the next two words? Eternal life. I want you to remember that. We'll come back to it later. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord commanded us, Paul and Barnabas. And Isaiah, this is from Isaiah 49, originally applies to Messiah. I have made you, the Messiah, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. But since Paul is called to share the message of that Messiah as apostle of Gentiles, it's like his life verse well. Okay, so I'm 48. So when the Gentiles hear this, they're really excited because, remember, they're outsiders. You know, in, a, in the book of Ephesians, Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He says, you, you Gentiles, before you heard the message of Jesus, he said, you were without God and without hope. You were the outsiders. You were completely excluded. And now, through Jesus, that dividing wall of the law of Torah has been torn down, the spiritual Berlin Wall. And so now all can come in and be part of this new community of Messiah and they're excited about this. You know, and they don't have to be circumcised, and they don't have to stop, change their eating habits and everything else. So in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for, what's, that, what's the next few words? Eternal life, there it is again, believe. And so the word of the Lord spread through the region. So just like Paul was hoping, it becomes a strategic center from here. The message of Jesus is going to go out in that whole area. And, um, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women. So these are the, the Gentile women that uh, worship God but are not buying into the message of Paul uh, and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region, probably an official kind of governmental kick out here. And so as they're leaving, they shake the dust off their feet as a warning to them. Now, this is a prophetic action. Jesus... Uh, uh, one said that if you, when, you, when you go from, told it's apostle, when you're going from city to city, if they reject the message, shake the dust off your feet. Now, this is a prophetic action that's saying, you know what, you've rejected the, salva- the message of salvation. Therefore, all that's left for you is judgment, condemnation. And we don't want to be anywhere near you when that judgment comes. So we want to shake even the dust of your town off our feet. We want to distance ourselves as far as we can. And so that's why it's called a warning here. They shook the dust off their feet as a warning, and they went to, in other words, hey, you know, if you're a Jew and you're rejecting Messiah, there is no hope, right? So serious business. And so um, they went about 80 miles down the road then on this interstate to Iconium, and uh, the disciples, notice the new followers of Jesus called disciples, again, as always, uh, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So once someone comes to Jesus Wrongs are, are turned to right. The broken bones of our spiritual life are reset. There's a healing that comes. We, for the first time in our lives, know who we are. First time in our life, we know who God is. We've entered this new relationship with God. We've been forgiven. We've been received His Spirit. There's a new joy that happens. So one of the signs that someone comes to Jesus is joy. It's just the way it is. And so uh, we'll see that all the way through Acts. So that's the passage, right? Big passage, long passage, Paul wants to take the time to, uh, I mean, Luke wants to take the time to kind of spell out because he wants us to understand this is how the rest of Acts is going to go. Uh, this is how the rest of, that Paul's going to go into places. He's going to look for Jews whenever possible, start ministry there. Uh, when that's not working, go to Gentiles, church gets formed, and then he moves on. And when he's talking with Jews, this is the kind of message that he's going to bring, that the story of Jesus is the story of Israel. Everything's leading up to it. And through Jesus, this new relationship with God is possible, Okay. So that's the message. Now, today, what I want to do for us as we unpack this for ourselves, just real quickly, I want to focus on four key words that pop up in this message of uh, Paul uh, that become critical words for him as he, in the coming years, will teach and write about the message of Jesus and what it means to be part of the Messiah's people, critical words for what it means to be a follower of Jesus then and now for our lives 
And so there on your note sheet, you have a section that's called the new paradigm, four key words. And so I want to just quickly hit on four words that come up today. And these words are closely interrelated. Um, I like to think of them, um, if you think of like a diamond, a beautiful diamond that has different sides, different facets. And uh, as every time you spin that single diamond around, um, you, it catches the light in a different way. You see a different beauty, right? Uh, but it's all the same diamond. In the same way, these four words, it's hard to even talk about one of the words without talking about the other words. Um, and yet each one shines a different light on this message that Paul's bringing, the message of our salvation. So let's jump in. The first word that you, we read here it's a, that jumps out at me is the word forgiveness. Right? So uh, if you look at chapter 13, verse 38... Paul says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And so, like I said, as modern-day Christ followers or 21st century non-Christ followers, we tend to look at our relationship with God in very individualistic way. Right? We tend to look at it, uh, is my personal relationship with God, am I forgiven or not? But for Israel, it was much bigger than this, um, they have a story as a nation. Their story of a nation is their call. A story of their nation is their disobedience. The story is about their exile to the nations. And even though they've come back to Israel, they're still scattered throughout the world. They're still under Roman domination. The kingdom of God has not come. They're still kind of not the kingdom they were designed to be. They're still kind of experiencing the judgment because of their rebellion. But the prophets had all predicted that there would come a day when God would return to the nation, when God would send his Messiah, he would bring his kingdom, all wrongs would be turned to right, and one of the marks of his messianic kingdom is the forgiveness of sins, that um, God would remember their sins no more, that their sins would be separated as far as the east are from the west. It would be a time of healing for the nation. Are, are you with me on this? So what Paul is saying is that that time has come. The promises God made to our nation has come that through the Messiah, we have entered into this new season where there is forgiveness and there is healing of our sins. Right? Now, this goes on to be like a major theme for the Apostle Paul, major topic. We see it all through his letters. But just an example, there in your note sheet, Colossians 1, Dave actually mentioned this passage last week, but he says, God has freed us from the power of darkness He's brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. The son paid for our sins, and in him we have what? For forgiveness, right? So, so the number first word, and we're going to build on this, is forgiveness. So the message is there is a way to be forgiven. So let me ask you a question. No show of hand. How many of you have something in your life that you'd like to be forgiven of? And we're all there. We're all there, right? And the message that Paul is bringing is there is a way to be forgiven for all crimes committed against our true king. There is a way to receive a pardon, a gift of what I call total amnesty. And so that's we're going to start there. We're going to build on that. Number two, the second word builds on this. And, of course, the question is, all right, if there's this offer of forgiveness, how do we go about achieving it? Um, and throughout human history, the human race has had lots of different theories on this. How do you gain forgiveness? But if you look through human history, I think there's two primary theories that, that, that show up throughout all different kinds of religions and all different kinds of races and people and so on. And one is a theory of sacrifice, right? Like you see it through all pagan religions, you see it in the history world, that we need to sacrifice, kind of make up for what we've done. The second uh, kind of way that as a human race, we've often thought about this is that maybe if we do enough good things to balance the scale, we can make up for the bad things and thus attain forgiveness. So different religions will have different suggestions or commandments or ways for you to balance those scales. 
kind of get karma back going in your direction. But uh, it's, it's very common. It's just part of our fallen human nature. It's the way we think. Even as followers of Jesus, we often think like this, even though we know better. Hey, what could I do, right? If, maybe if I gave more, if I served more, if I stopped using those words, if I started doing good things, if I worked in kids' ministry, whatever the thing is, you know, that, that what could I do to kind of gain that forgiveness that I know I need? But the surprising thing that Paul says is that we can't gain forgiveness by our performance. And so the second word that becomes big in Paul's message is the word faith. Now, let's talk about the word faith. Uh, This is hard to see in English, but it's obvious in Greek. Uh, In English, the word faith and belief sound related, but similar. I mean, related, but very different, right? Faith and belief. But in Greek, the word for faith and the word for believe are basically the same word. So the word for faith is pistis. The word for believe is pistuo. It's all the same family of words. And so when you read in your Bible, to believe, it's, it's to have faith, or to have faith is believe. It's all, all the same thing, right? And so what Paul is going to say is that there's a way to receive forgiveness, um, but it doesn't come from our performance It comes from our trust in the one who performed for us. That there is one who has come, this promised Messiah, who has lived the life that we were created to live, that he has died the death for the sentence that we should have paid, and he rose again as our representative to give us new life. And so that that this forgiveness is not something that we can earn or make up for. It's something that will be given as a gift by our trust in the one who paved the way for us. So the way, um, I want you to look at this. In, in chapter 13 and verse 39, he's just talked about forgiveness in verse 38. Um, I mean, he's just talked about, um, uh, yeah, forgiveness. And so he says in verse 39, through him, everyone who believes, and pastuo, everyone who believes is set free, now catch this, from, what are the next two words? Every sin. Now I want you to catch that, and I want you to let that sink in for a minute, and then I want to ask you, do you believe that? He says, this forgiveness that I'm describing, it comes not from your performance. It comes through faith in Christ's performance. But he says, but it's a forgiveness that covers every sin. Now, does he say that covers most sin? Does he say it covers all grade A, low-level, level one sin? Does he say it covers the vast majority of sins, but not the biggest ones? What he's claiming is that this forgiveness is for all sins. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's just pretend for a second that I was a mind reader and that I could project your thoughts on this screen. So I want you to think now of your greatest sin. Now, I know it's like don't think of a white elephant. That's what you think about, right? So you cannot not think of your greatest sin. Because I just, I just threw it out there. You can try not to get, but what is your greatest, like what would be in your life the thing that you are most ashamed of? The thing that you would be most embarrassed if those sitting around you knew? And let's just say for a second that I'm just going to project it on that screen. 
I think the reality is if I had that ability, this place would empty fast. And what Paul is saying is that this message he brings is that through Messiah that he's offering forgiveness for every sin. The ones we're most ashamed of, the ones that keep us up at night, the ones we hope no one will ever find out, every sin. And it's not based on our performance. It's not based on our achievement. It's not about what we achieve. It's about what we, who we believe. The third word, oh, by the way, before we go on, of course, just faith becomes a big word for Paul. And in Romans 1, you have an example. I'm not ashamed of the good news because it's the power that God uses to save everyone who, what? Who believes, pistio to save the Jew first and then also the non-Jews, just like we've seen today, going first to the Jews and the Gentiles. The third word is the word justification. Now, again, in Greek, this is a powerful word, and it's uh, really hard to see this in English, so I'm going to spell it out for you, all right? So when we hear the word justification, um, in Greek, there's a family of words Um, that have to do with uh, righteousness. So they're all basically the same, like righteous, righteousness, justice. It's all the same in Greek, right? So it's the word dikaios. Uh, So you have dikaios, righteous, dikaiosune, righteousness, dikaio, to make righteous, to justify, all the same. So I want you to think of this family of words here. Uh, When you read justification, it has to do with putting wrongs to right. It has to do with um, it has to do with making something right. It has to do with being just. Uh, okay, so it's his family, and so you see it in verse thirty-nine. It says, "Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin." And he says, and then he de- describes this. This is a justification that you are not able to obtain through the law of Moses. Now, Paul will talk about this more later on in his writings. And basically what he will say is that the law of God, let's call it Torah, the Torah of God. Uh, Torah means law, it means instruction. Um, So the Torah of Moses, the law of God, what he will say is the law of God is a good thing. Often in Christian circles today, the law gets a bad rap. But what Paul actually teaches is, no, the Torah is a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. You know, Jesus said that all the Torah, all the law, is summed up in two commandments, love God and love people. The law is a beautiful thing. It was a great gift that God gave to the nation of Israel. The problem with Torah is not Torah. The problem with Torah is us. And the problem is there's something broken with us as a race. So we all have this magnetic pull to the dark side. We don't naturally love God and others. We love ourselves. We naturally use others, use God. And so what Paul will go on to say is that the Torah is a great thing, but instead of pointing us in the path of life and showing us the path to to look to go, that when it comes in contact with fallen human beings, we do the exact opposite, and it just reveals how messed up we are. Like the Torah is like the ruler that when held up against our life shows how crooked we are. And so the Torah then doesn't have the power to change us. It doesn't have the power to remake us at a heart level. And so what Paul is saying here is that the Torah that was given to to point the way to life, actually, in actuality, it leads to condemnation and judgment because it shows us, it just reveals how messed up we are. And so what Paul is saying here is he says that in verse 39... 
Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And this is a justification you were not able to obtain through the Torah of Moses. There's a way to be made right. There's a way to be restored. But it doesn't come from Torah. It comes from Messiah who carried out Torah perfectly in his life, lived this life of obedience for us. And so this goes on to be an important topic for the Apostle Paul. So, for example, in Romans 5, there in your notes, it says, since we have been, you'll begin to see several of these words now moving together, as I said they would, since we have been justified through faith, okay, not through our performance, through faith, we have what? Peace. Can we say it again? We have what? Peace with God. So in other words, we were at war with God as a race. We were his enemies. We were in rebellion. But through Messiah and his death, we have now been switched sides in this war. And we've come into the family of God, and we now have peace with God. That we're no longer at war. And he says, it's happened through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ means Messiah through whom we have gained access by faith, there it is, into this what? This grace in which we what? Stand. Beautiful. The Apostle Paul says that through the Messiah, we have switched sides, we have walked through a door, we have gained access to a new spiritual address in our life. That we are no longer living in a place called condemnation, We are now living in a place called grace. That as followers of Jesus, our spiritual address is a place called grace. Grace is not something we receive from time to time. It's our permanent location. This is where we live. We stand in a place called grace. Now, This doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus that God is always happy with us. It doesn't mean he won't discipline us. I think this is one of the ways this has often been mistaught. I've often heard this in Christian circles, that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. That is not true. He sees us. And the way you know that is you read the New Testament, they're getting rebuked all the time. Like he's not seeing Jesus, he's seeing them, right? But when that rebuke comes, it comes as a father, like in Revelation 3, where he's talking, where Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea. He didn't say, hey, I look at you and I see me, you're all perfect. He says, you're lukewarm, not to spit you out of my mouth. He says, but those that I love, I discipline. And so often as followers of Jesus, we tend to think like this, when I'm doing well in my life, when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm obeying, I'm not using bad words, whatever the thing is. When I'm doing well, God loves me. And when I'm not doing well, he doesn't love me. And Paul says, no. No. When you come to Christ and you're justified, you're forgiven of your sin, you come into this new home spiritually, and it's a place called grace. And your father always will love you. Sometimes he'll be happy, sometimes not happy. Sometimes he'll do it, but he'll always, as a father's love, you stand and live in a place called grace. Isn't that beautiful? Awesome. And so then we leave one final word. And the last word is the word life. And I pointed this out a couple times to you, how... Paul says in verse 46, since you middle it, since you reject it, and you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Right? Uh, if you go down to verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life. Now, as modern day Christ followers, chances are, for at least many of us, if not most of us in this room, when we hear the word eternal life, we think of something like this. We think of If you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, Jesus comes into your life so that when you die, you'll be forgiven, and then when you die, you can go to be with Jesus forever in heaven. That's eternal life. I want to say that that would have been a very foreign concept, both to Jews and to the Apostle Paul as a Jew. 
that that's not the paradigm at all uh, that they was operating in. For the Jewish mindset, there are two ages. The whole history of the cosmos can be divided into two ages. There's this present evil age, characterized by sin, judgment, death, rebellion, evil, oppression, fallen world. And then there's the age to come, the age of the kingdom, the age of life to come, when Messiah will come, turn all wrongs to right, judge the world in righteousness, destroy what's evil, lie and lay down with the lamb, new heavens and new earth. So you have the, the current age and you have the future age. This future age is called the age of life, life to come. In fact, in the Greek, it doesn't really say eternal life. What it says is life of the ages. What are you going to It's life of the ages. And so the question for the Jew then is how does one attain to the life of the ages? How do I make sure that when Messiah comes and when the kingdom comes and when God returns and when all of creation is restored, how can I be sure that I will attain to that life, the life of the coming age? And what Paul is saying is you can know that you'll be part of that coming age through a relationship with Messiah here and now. Not based on your performance, based on his, and based on the justification that happens because you've linked your life with his. And so what Paul goes on to say is what's more than that. The moment a person comes to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, catch this, we are actually linked participators in the coming age here and now, that we are actually connected spiritually through our connection with the Messiah who has already risen from the dead, the first fruits of the coming age. We are linked organically to him through his spirit. We actually here and now begin to experience the life of the coming age here and now so that we can live a new life, not in its fullness, not completely but we can experience new life here and now. And so what Paul says in Romans 6, he says, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Messiah Jesus, connected organically by his spirit, we were baptized into his death. What was his death to? It was a death to this age, to the sin and death and destruction of this age. And he said, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, you know, the first fruits of this coming world, through the glory of the Father, we too might live a what? New life here and now. And so this is the message that Jesus has given his apostle to share, not just with Israel, but with the world. That there is a way to be completely forgiven from every sin you've committed, There is a way to be made right again, and it's not based on our performance. And this opens a door for us that we will be part of the coming age that is the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. And on top of that, through the power of his spirit, we can actually begin to receive and live in the power of the new life, that coming age, here and now. And so it's an amazing message, and this message is going to go on to change the world changed hundreds and thousands and millions of lives ever since. And the question for us, of course, is how do we respond? And as we start moving towards the end of the service today, I've asked the band to come, and I've asked them to sing a particular song that I think beautifully expresses what we've, just, we've talked about. And so I want you just to sit back. I want you to take these four words. I want you to meditate on them. I want you to listen to this song. And just ask God to be speaking to you the truth of this. And I'm going to come back and we're going to pray and do some other things. Amen. Let's pray together. How can it be, God, that your love for us is so incredible that you would come to be with us. And not just to be with us, but to die for us. To make a way. To be the second Adam. What the first Adam failed, the second to succeed. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to just give you a chance to respond. I want to talk to both believers and non here, but I want to start with those of you who are not yet giving your life to Jesus. This may be the first time in your life where you've heard the message of Jesus in such a way that for whatever reason, it's just making sense. And God is speaking to you. And you're like those Gentiles who are so excited in Antioch that 
you realize that there is a way for you to come home. There's a God who loves you. There's a way to be made right. You have all your sins forgiven, total amnesty. There's a way to be justified and made right. There's a way to receive new life, to live the life you were created to live through the power of his spirit, not just this life, but the next life. And you want in. You want to follow Jesus. You want to ask him into your life. And if that's you, I'm going to give you a chance right now. And I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. This expresses the desire of your heart. I ask you just to pray along in your mind, your heart. God will hear if you're sincere. Just pray with me. Dear Jesus, I ask you into my life. I thank you that you lived and died and rose for me. And I ask you to come into my life and to forgive me, to make me right, to fill me with your spirit. Teach me how to follow you, both this life and the next life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you just ask Jesus into your life, I know if you're sincere, he came in. And I want to welcome you to the kingdom. But I also want to just help you as you this first week as you take your first steps as a new follower. And so I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. That Inside your program is a little card called the Connect Card. I ask you to fill it out on the back. Just write me a note. Say, Michael, I gave my life to Jesus, or I asked Jesus in my life. We'll know what you mean. And I'll send you a letter this week. Here's just some first steps in your new relationship. And I want to, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, talk to those of us here. We're followers of Jesus. We've heard this message. There's perhaps nothing we heard today that was completely new or completely surprising. Like we've known that Jesus died for us. We know that it's by his death and not our performance that we're made right. And yet, if we're honest at times, we really struggle. We feel like when we are following, he loves us more. When we don't, he loves us less. And we're often tempted to fall back in that old mindset. If I, if I could just get him to love me, if I could just do enough or say enough or pray enough or read enough or obey enough. And and so it's just led to this bondage in your life. You're not really experiencing the freedom that Jesus came to give you. And so today, I just want to encourage you that you would ask Jesus in your own way just to open your eyes to his love for you and his death and what it means for you and your justification, your forgiveness of all sins, not just some or not of the lower class, but the very top ones that come up in the screen of your mind when I ask the things you're most ashamed of. And we just ask him today to meet with you and to show you a little bit more about his grace and his love for you and the death of the Messiah for you and what that means, the freedom he, he came to give you. And as we worship now, as we celebrate his tremendous love and this freedom that he brings, as we bring our offerings, God, we just pray that you'd meet us and do what only you can do. God, we cannot open our eyes to these things. It's only your spirit that can. So all we can do is come and ask and open ourselves up. And we pray that even now, as we worship, that this incredible message of salvation through Messiah that Paul brought that day in Anna it set people free and gave joy. They're filled with the Spirit. We pray that that would happen today as we seek you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we worship? God, our justice and God, our strength. Paul will later write that Jesus Christ has been made unto us our righteousness, our sanctification, our salvation. That Messiah has come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has come to turn all wrongs to right, to restore all of creation to, to his Father, healed and restored. And as followers of Jesus, this is the mission that we're called to be a part of. That we're called not simply to be healed and restored and forgiven. We're called to be remade as part of the new creation in Christ, the vanguard of the kingdom that's coming that we are called to go out and the power of his spirit bring healing and hope and restoration and the message of Messiah to a dying world. Amen? May this be a week where we stand tall and stand firmly in a place called grace. May it be a week that in your life you come to realize the amazing love that God has for you. 
Whether you father well or from a distance, when you're up or when you're down, if you're in the Messiah, you are deeply loved. You stand in a place called grace. And God has not only high hopes, but big plans for your life. That he who began a good work in you will continue to carry it out. He'll continue to carry it out as we stand and bathe and rejoice in this permanent address of our souls, the place called grace. Amen? God bless you guys. Love you. Have a great week.